Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O-Line Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to Black Arm of the Law. Another episode is in full effect. I am your host, Carl Payne. Uh, black first, black always, black last. And today's guest is none other than one and only Mr. Jacques Batista. Round of applause, please. Woo! How you doing, Doc? Thank you, sir. It's an honor to be here and an honor to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Man, we are very, very excited and very glad to have you my brother. Now, hold on. Now, now we talked off the air. Uh, uh, we actually met. Mm-hmm. We met before? Yeah, and I uh, sent a photo through uh, one of your colleagues where we actually had met. I just can't remember if it was in Chicago, if it was in North Carolina. I, it was yeah. a number of years ago, but it, we definitely are together on the photo, and we actually had an interesting conversation. Okay, well, that is us. I that is us, yeah. for sure. I saw the I obviously, I obviously didn't make a lasting impression, though. <laughs> Brother, is it, tr- trust me, blame it on the alcohol. You know, don't blame it on anything else. Uh, <laughs> you, know, bl- you know, no worries. Now, refresh my memory. What did we talk about that night? Uh, you were asking me about why there was such a poor showing of African Americans in the FBI along with a lot of the other federal agencies, and knowing such, what would make somebody really want to pursue a career in an organization that really was not trying to enhance African-Americans' lives or minorities' lives in today's society? And that was probably 10, 12 years ago. Look at God. Would you look? Won't he do it? Won't he do it? Yep. Really won't? Yep. That is crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Wow. That, and that definitely mm-hmm. sounds like something I would say for sure. Like, you know, I've been I've been called yes, out before for being a little too outspoken at times. Um, well, but, no, you, know, you were spot on. You were spot on with it because I think we spoke for about ten or twelve minutes, and then you had to move on because you were going to another function. Wow. Well, I, first of all, I appreciate your time back then, and I appreciate you today where we can continue that mm-hmm. conversation. Um, you know, right. uh, hopefully, hopefully you can shed some new light on that. Hopefully it's not the same as it was back then. You know, so <laughs> I mean, hopefully there's well, been some changes, you know, since then. I, I hate to be a dream killer for you, but we're going to do our very best to give you a warm and fuzzy by the time we're done talking about it. Well, then, you know what? Well, then maybe we can suggest some new solutions. How about that? Maybe we can suggest. Oh, some- I don't think they're I don't think they're ready for new solutions. I think they want to keep it at such a tandem right now. And why do you so, think that is? Why do you think that is? Jump right into it. Well, wow. well, because if you look at the history of the FBI, we've had agents back as early as 1919 who were agents of color serving in the FBI. I don't know if you were aware. Mr. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wormley was our very first black FBI agent, and we recently celebrated uh, 100 years of black history in the FBI. And we looked at all of the black Americans who had served the country, not just in the military, but in the FBI, and did not receive the necessary recognition until recently. And that is because of, if you watch today's news and you see what's going on in today's society, we have always been that pillar that the rest of the country has supported itself on. We helped build this country This country was built on our very backs, and people continue to foster the ideas that we should be kept at a very limited capacity. Because if we really were to expand the way we were supposed to, they would be surprisingly shocked at how really intelligent we are and the capabilities that we have to really change the culture and the dynamics of how this country is built. If you want to branch out even further, look at all of the inventions that we have made that help this country. 
that go back beyond Eli Whitney and the cotton gin, which he never invented, by the way. It was invented by two persons of color and that he took the patent from and made his own. But we have invented everything. Open heart surgery we've done. Blood plasma we created. The gas mask. Traffic lights. And on and on and on. The electric door lock for vehicles. All created by people of color. The, the, the elevator, the pulley system, the uh, broom, uh, the mop. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, I'm, I'm yep. well aware of this. As a matter of fact, I'm a huge advocate. I tell my kids, I got yep. four sons, and yep. I'm a huge advocate. I tell my sons all the time, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I, I remember the first time uh, of feeling any type of of uh, nationalism or any type of, you know, for, right. for myself. I remember the first time right. feeling really, really feeling black mm -hmm. and proud right. was when I went right. to an HBCU. You know, it took, me, it took me until college to really get a sense of who I was and what I was getting. And I was like, damn, just think what that could have done. You know, I mean, I come from mm -hmm. a good foundation, good stock anyway. And I was blessed with that in terms of, of having a foundation where they, they instilled a lot of pride and a lot of um, early on lessons. You know, the foundation was there. Um, yes, sir. Yes, but sir. it still wasn't enough. <laughs> It still wasn't enough because if the majority of the day is being spent at school, right? Right. And I was always one of those kids. Like, like I grew up in Harlem, but I was always one of those kids that was bused to school. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. so I was usually the only black kid in my class. And mm -hmm. they never taught, you know, you know, all you get was, you know, the shortest day of the month. I mean, shortest day of the year, Mount, mm -hmm. uh, Martin Luther King, the I Have a Dream. Mm -hmm. And they never, uh -huh. ever, ever, ever talked about the million and one things from the atrocities to this whole uh -huh. country being built on our backs. Uh -huh. And I thought to myself, uh -huh. uh, as I got older, I thought to myself, man, can you imagine what that would have done to a lot of young black kids' self-esteem if they knew, yeah. if they yeah. knew, absolutely knew for a fact that they were the reason that would make them feel not inferior, but superior. You know, mm -hmm. if not just as equal, um, mm -hmm. you know, because but they don't teach mm -hmm. you those things. You're right. And so I'm like, I actually started a movement to start making that a part of actual history classes. You know, I actually started, yeah. you know, it's it's a long road. You know, it's a long fight. Yeah. But I'm still pushing that fight. And you're right. Right. So I think it's not it's not yeah. one of those things when you said when you said they would be shocked to know. No, they know. They absolutely know what we're capable well, of. Well, it, it's my humble opinion and belief that not only are they aware of our capabilities, but they admire our resilience and they envy our ability to assimilate, to assimilate to whatever environment we, we, we are put into. Um, they, they, actually, they actually envy our strength, our internal strength. We overcome whatever critical incident we're placed into because we don't know how to fail, or at least we did at one time not know how to fail. Now I can't speak for our current generation because they don't want to learn where they came from. They're only concerned with where they're going right now, and they don't want to hear anything about their past. I can remember as a child when Budweiser came out with a series of monthly calendars, which were called the Black Kings and Queens of Africa. And each month of the year, you learned about a different king and queen and the areas of Africa that they ruled. You learned also about the impact of their ruling and what they had to help build current civilizations that are existing today. You know, there are a number of instances that helped spark my interest in wanting to be better and knowing deep down inside I was better. Like yourself, I had to overcome a lot of adversity growing up. I grew up in a predominantly, you know, grade school. I grew up in a predominantly white grade school. I grew up in a predominantly white high school. I grew up in, you know, my HBCU experience and then my law school experience were both HBCUs. And it was the first time I was surrounded by people of nothing but color. But it was also the first time that I learned these same people of color who I inherently believed in, a lot of them had the same issues that those that hate us so much have within our own selves. And they, in ways, can be just as destructive, if not more destructive, than the people who want to do us outward harm and keep us locked down. 
And it's sad. It really is because we're better than that as a people. But I don't know what it's going to take to get us to unite. I really don't. So like, like, you know, other great people I've worked with, you know, you know, the Don Taylors and the, the Gerald Jacksons and the Paul Geigers and the Earl Baguettes and the Doug Shipleys, not to mention female agents who I've worked with, we've all taken an oath to ourselves that even after transcending federal service, we're still working in the community to make a difference. We're still trying to be mentors to young men and women out there to get them to make right decisions and to learn from the consequences of the decisions that they choose to make. I'm prattling now, so you got to stop me. You better reel, no, you better no, reel no. me in, man. First, first of all, I'm never going to stop. Never going to stop you because you drop right. jewels. You are dropping gems. <laughs> you are dropping science, my brother. You letting them have no. it today. You're like, blah, 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 I feel like that scene from Jaws when he goes, you're going to need a bigger boat. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yo, that's a that's a great metaphor, actually. That is a great metaphor. We go, people people wake up, but we're gonna need a bigger right. boat. We need a bigger boat. Yeah. So we we're gonna yeah. come back to some of those things that you mentioned actually, because we, we definitely have to figure this thing out. So so let's start with you, right? And you were talking about mm-hmm. your upbringing. Tell us a little tell me a little bit about where you're from, how you got started. Talk talk to me about that. Well, uh young Jacques Batiste was born in South Carolina parents were from South Carolina. We moved to New Orleans when my dad was enrolled at Xavier University in the School of Pharmacy. Uh, after graduating from there, we were supposed to leave and go back to the Carolinas, but Xavier hired my dad to go on and be the recruiter for the School of Pharmacy to bring more talent of people of color into the School of Pharmacy. My mother matriculated into the New Orleans public school system where she stayed active, where she retired as a school principal from Warren Easton High School in their community school. Throughout that time, I grew up in New Orleans, but also spent plenty of time in the Carolinas every summer and um, got an opportunity to have the best of both worlds, growing up on a farm as well as growing up in the inner city. Um, I learned values, not just from my parents, but from my relatives, my cousins, aunts and uncles, grandparents, and people who had good home ethics training, people who had truth in everything that they knew that they were going to do, you know, a hard day's labor for a hard day's pay. You know, these are the types of things that I grew up knowing about. So my pathway, my design was early driven from a young boy. Um, When I got to Xavier, I, I, you know, I matriculated through Xavier, graduated with a dual degree, chemistry and political science, because I'd actually had ambitions of going on to medical school and stayed with the program all the way up to my junior year. And then looked at my GPA and looked at my uh, transcript. And I said, you know what? B's and C's are not going to get me into the better medical schools. So I really wanted to challenge myself and wanted to go on to the practice of law. So I went on and changed my degree to poli-sci. My GPA went from about a 2.9, 3.0 to about a 3.6. And uh, I showed a propensity for argument and always standing up for other people's rights, something that I think I've always had about me ever since I was young, um, always defending those who couldn't defend themselves. So I guess I had a natural aptitude for um, uh, protecting people. You know, I've always challenged wrong. I've always tried to get people to understand there's a better way to do things and you can still respect each other while doing it. You may not like each other, but you damn sure got to respect each other. Um, Law school at Southern University in Baton Rouge, then matriculated to the state attorney general's office where I did a year there as a lawyer. And then I moved from there to New Orleans, worked for the city attorney's office in New Orleans, handling workers' comp cases until they needed people to become police officers. So Moving on, I was then able to work for a very prestigious small family law firm in Washington, D.C., actually Alexandria, Virginia, which was the law firm of Ravian Stafford. Um, Very small firm, but they handled a lot of contract cases for civil rights violations, especially of African-Americans in their community. I had the fortune of working a case where a young man was arrested by an Alexandria police officer, canine officer, who then proceeded to handcuff him, prone him out on the ground, 
got his canine out of the car and let the dog bite him nine times in the groin area, you know, and this poor man couldn't even defend himself. And unfortunately for the officer, everything was captured right at an intersection on the traffic cam. So it was my first slam dunk for the firm working, you know, a civil rights case. Now we beat the city of Alexandria, but we lost in the Commonwealth of Virginia due to circumstances that I think were beyond our control. But during that time, that was the first opportunity I had to meet a African-American agent from the FBI, Gerald Jackson, who was assigned from the Civil Rights Division at FBI headquarters. Gerald and I worked for four months together. Around what uh, time was this? And I don't mean, you know. We're, we're, looking, we're looking at 1994, okay. 94, 95 time frame. Okay. Because through through Gerald's interest in me and recognizing, I guess, what he thought was a skill set that I had, he then helped me get into the FBI Academy after I had not been accepted or not been contacted to go on. He made, you know, some opportunities and some inroads for me, and I was able to then be accepted into an FBI class. So July 9th, 1995, I reported to the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia class of 57 students and of course i'm the only african-american in the class right. no males other than myself no females the closest thing to a minority was a native american named dion francis and an asian female named denise Wu. everything that's else hilarious. was cut everything all, else was all, co cotton fields cotton that's fields uh-huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's hilarious the names i'm sorry i was being stereotypical i'm sorry um <laughs> All right, let's let's you moving fast, so I got I got to catch you when I can. So, which is great. Okay. I love it. I love it. You are you are just filling me up today. Um, now you you said you said there was a traffic cam, right? Thank God you said I, there was a traffic cam that that right. uh, was able. So 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 that brings me to this. What is your what is your uh, opinion or what is your feeling um, with regards to? cell phones do you think that you know cell phones body cams because obviously there's been a lot that's been caught on camera and and, and in my right. opinion it seems to be, for, for me it seems to be you know a lot of people feel like you know it's 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 helping a lot of people feel like it's helping so i just mm -hmm. want to know do you feel like it's helping do you feel like it, it hasn't really done much mm -hmm. what, what's your opinion on that well I have a dichotomy there let me let me and let me be very careful how i explain the difference to you People who want to use their cell phones to capture what they perceive as a misjustice of carriage by law enforcement, that's great if you're going to do that. But capture the whole situation. Don't just capture when the police put hands on the person. Capture what led up to that instance. Capture to up what led up to the defiance, the person being noncompliant, possibly you know spitting on the officer, possibly threatening the officer. Basically, not wanting to show some level of cooperation with the officer. And I'm not saying that that is the opportunity for the officer to then put hands on, because I believe you can talk to people with respect and still get them to be compliant with what it is you're trying to accomplish. Okay? So my whole thing with cell phones is they're great tools as long as they show the whole story and not just one side. Now, on the flip side, Body cams that are generally worn by law enforcement have a very positive outlook if they're activated when they're supposed to be at the beginning of the circumstance because you see everything as it unfolds and it's very hard to taint the truth when it's captured directly on film that is court admissible. And that's the difference between cell phone cameras and body cams is there's a greater opportunity to change the narrative of a cell phone, but you can't change the narrative of a body cam because it is controlled by an internal network. So you can't just go in and change the story, if you understand what I'm saying. So I do, both I have do, a positive. I do, I do, but I've heard different. I do, I do, but I've, I've heard different. Well, I'm sure there are opportunities to change the truth about them, the question is, you can change anything. You can change any narrative to fit mm -hmm. what it is you're trying to convey. I'm just saying that at this time, it is the best way we can have to show all sides of the story without it right. being convoluted initially. That's all right. I'm saying. 
and I and I agree with you. I agree with you on showing the whole thing. So so you know, and most and most of the time, most of the time, we get that. Nine Correct. nine times out of ten, we get the whole video. Correct. We get Correct. the whole video. But where's the Correct. officer's culpability after after resistance? Every officer should understand that he has a duty to protect this country from foreign and domestic invaders as part of the oath that he takes. What a lot of officers, and I hate to say this, is that I've come in contact with, a, a, not a large majority, but there are those who you can tell growing up with last pick for kickball. And as a result, you give them a badge and a gun, and they think somebody should automatically respect them, and they're going to fight for that respect that they feel this person owes them, rather than looking at the totality of the circumstance. We, as law enforcement officers, come from what is called a warrior breed, but we need to be more focused on being guardians than we are on being warriors. We all have the inherent ability to be warriors out there, to stand up for what we believe in and to fight. But in the same breath, we've got to be smart enough to use our brains and use our heart and use something called servility and understanding. You need to see what it is this person is dealing with before you become so quick to grab them. You know, and that goes down a whole different road of police responding to mental health issue situations, police who may not be qualified to be dealing with people who are off their medications and things like that. But mm -hmm. until they find and set up a system that deals with it, unfortunately, this is going to be the best that they have. Where we fall short is we teach our officers that it is not, it, you, you shouldn't make any mistakes. We're all human. We all will make mistakes. The truth of the matter comes in and how we grow from those mistakes. If you see a situation that's starting to derail and go offline, one of your fellow officers should be man enough or woman enough to step up and say, you know what, I see you're getting a little heated, step back, I got this. And then they engage the person and give you a chance to step back. We need to start doing what's called not retreating, but a tactical withdrawal from a situation to reassess, which may be anywhere from 10 seconds to two minutes to relook at the situation. Okay, this guy is standing there. He's got a knife in his hand. It's obvious he's not going to drop the knife, but he hasn't charged at anyone. He hasn't tried to kill anyone. He's just telling you don't come near him. Okay, maybe then it's time to use a level of force, not lethal, but maybe try to negotiate with him to at least put the knife down. And I'm not saying, and I can't armchair all of these situations that have happened. All I know is in my times of dealing with general public in violent combative situations, a large majority of the time I've been able to talk to them and reason with them before having to go to the nightstick or the taser or the right. handcuffs or even, the, right. or, or even uh, lethal action. But the problem is we're not training these officers on community policing, but more importantly on community engagement. What we're training these officers to do is go out here and respond in high dynamic to high dynamic calls. They don't want to go out and deal with the public. Here's the issue that I see. First of all, the people that are uh, policing the communities aren't of the community. That's the first problem. Oh, I, I, so they don't, I agree. So they don't, they don't identify. They don't empathize, mm -hmm. sympathize, none of the above. Mm -hmm. They don't relate, connect to the community that they are policing, first of all. Well, that's a, let me just interrupt you and just add one thing. In a lot of communities, though, like Atlanta PD and Chicago PD, you will find that officers do come from the same community as they police. And I'm just using those as two examples. So it, it, it is a truth that you're saying, but it's not a complete overwhelming statistic. Well, I said a lot of the time. A lot of the times. A high percentage. A high percentage. I agree with that. I'll agree with that. that. Yes, sir. Not to say yes, that sir. there aren't some yes, that are, because yes, I mean sir. I grew up in a neighborhood where I I, I absolutely knew who the cop was, right. you know, who, and 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 they knew right. my mom and them and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. But I also think it speaks to uh, I think it speaks to a frame of mind, frame of mind. Now you right. you you made a statement earlier which I would have to say I think you blanketed the statement, you know, based on the the badge. You know, coming into it, I think that a lot of people, yes, you you in particular, and maybe people of color. Yeah, you know, we might have a warrior attitude and we might have some of those things. But I think I think a lot of them, like you said, or were the ones that were picked last for, for basketball. 
you know, and kickball. So they don't come into it with that frame of mind. So I think, Understood. I think you know, they, they come in, and, and, and a lot of them that, that are white already have a God complex already. They already feel entitled. They already yeah. think, right. think, you know, right. so then it's that plus you owe me. That plus you owe me. Because, again, if, you, if, you're, if your job is to protect and serve, if your job is to right. be the guardian, then, then who are you to get mad because somebody has an attitude? Right. Who My whole thing is they, 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 they have an attitude. So learn to deal with that attitude because it's not going to change. Learn to be smarter. Learn to be more able to engage that person. See, the problem a lot of officers has, they've never taken conflict resolution. They've never taken verbal judo. So a lot of them don't maintain or, or have the capacity to argue with someone beyond so many words. They think that, okay, you're, I'm telling you what to do. You're not doing it. I'm giving you two more warnings. After that, I'm putting hands on you. You've got to be smarter than the average bear when dealing with a lot well, of people I thought, out there. I thought the police mm -hmm. were taught to de-escalate the situation, that there's a series of steps anyway. So there, if someone there has, is a training. There is a training for DSA. Nine times out of ten, mm -hmm. nine times out of ten, through my investigations and through my and, and through personal experiences, not necessarily mm -hmm. personal me, but uh, mm -hmm. personal experiences I've been involved with, it's because officers don't follow protocol. But there are too many laws and too many things in the system put in place to still protect them, so they have no culpability. They have, they have a million ways out. They have a million ways out more than you okay. do. Okay. And, that, and that's from the DA to the prosecutor. I mean, it's like it's like the, the deck is super stacked. Now you put okay. race into it. You know, I mean, including with this, you know, you know, it's like, okay, now today, today we want to follow the letter of the law. Right. The letter of the right. law says there's a stand your ground law. The letter of the law today right. says, uh, uh, yes, well, because there was, it's a no-knock state. Well, hello. You know, and, and, and it's like it's too much. It's too much. Right. It's too much. Right. Right. Well, I want to circle back when you said I blanketed something. I, I just want to let you know there's nothing I've done with my entire career in law enforcement, federal, state, and currently local that I'm ashamed of. And I stand by my training and the training I received because I know I, it has made me a better person as a result. Unfortunately, I can't speak for every other law enforcement officer in this country and the training that they received. All I know is I matriculate and try to surround myself with people who I know are going to obey the law as law enforcement officers, but are also compassionate enough to understand you take the badge and the gun and the uniform away, you're just a common citizen like everybody else. You have been given an innate gift or an innate you know, ability to protect beyond a certain measure. And where we fall short is we don't recognize that a lot of times and we take that for granted and we use that as an excuse for culpable action that we engage in. That's all I wanted to say to add to that, sir, because well, well, I, let me, I know. Let, I'm, let me mm -hmm. be clear, too. I wasn't attacking okay. you. I was just no, no. saying. And I, and I didn't take it that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't attacking you. I, I just wanted to make it clear right. that that I right. feel like, you know, you were speaking, as you said, from a personal standpoint, you know, from a point of view mm -hmm. where you may have felt like, you know, this this is who we, we think we are and this is who we, mm -hmm. we, you know, because I, mm -hmm. I would imagine so, right? You grow up wanting to protect. Mm -hmm. You grow up wanting to help. You grow up wanting to make a difference. You know, I remember wanting to be a right. superhero too. And that's to yeah. me, to me, you know, you know, the people who, you know, and I commend the good ones out there who are doing their jobs properly. We need you. Right. And, and right. you know, I respect you. Because it's not an easy mm -hmm. job, you know, just like the teachers of the right. world, you know, right. these are our heroes. These are our heroes, you know, so I, I, I commend that, you know, but Correct. You know, it's got to be a vet, it's got to be a better vetting process. It's got to be a vet better. I, uh, I agree. And I think yeah. but I, I personally think it starts with legislation and I think it starts with the laws, because at the end of the day, if there are certain laws in place. Right. Then there's right. then there's then nothing right. else is to, is to be said about it because they that's where they that's where you end up at every single time that's where we go mm -hmm. you know you end up you know, referring back to the book and right. the text and you know right. I, I'll never forget I'll tell you a quick story about me my okay. son must have been about between the ages of fourteen and sixteen at the time right and he mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're living in Los Angeles California and you know we're we're out in the valley. And he was invited 
uh, by one of his friends to go to another friend's house after school to, um, you mm-hmm. know, hang out, do some homework, whatever, you know, play some mm-hmm. video games, mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. this particular area that he went to, which he was not familiar with, happened to be a, a gang infested area. Okay. You know, a lot of gangs, a lot of, uh, you know, activity and so forth. And, and, you know, apparently the gangs used to hang out a lot in front of this building. And okay. the, the owner, from, from what I understand, complained about the loitering. And so they did a raid. You know, they did a sweep. They did a sweep, right? They did a sweep. Right. And right. my son, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, had no idea what was going on and was one of them who got, hey, what are you doing here? Okay. Come here. Right? Okay. Now, yeah. after talking to my son, the officer clearly knew and even said so that he was not a part of any of those goings on and, and was, mm-hmm. you know, so, but still took him in because why? Because he said he had to, because he said he had to based on, you know, so, you know, what the owners, you know, he, you know, called it in, it was loitering mm-hmm. this, that, and the other, right? So they take him in and they don't call us mm-hmm. obviously until they're at the station versus from, you know, you know, at the, uh, the site and we pick him up from the station and the officer tells us, you know, clearly we know, you know, we can tell that, you know, you have a good kid here. You know, he doesn't even talk like the rest of these guys that he's not a part of this situation. So we get a court date. We go to court. There is a black judge who is, I want to say at this time, she, she could have been about 60 something could have been in her sixties, you know, and I don't know for me, I just would have imagined, and, and maybe it's because I'm just such mm-hmm. a, you know, an optimistic that anybody who wanted to become a judge that, you know, who was black, wanted to make a difference, wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. who grew up during the time that our parents grew up, you know, civil rights time mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I just would imagine their, their motivation for becoming a judge was based on right and wrong. Right. And because right. they do have the, the, the ability to hand down just sentences, not that it's justice, but they do mm-hmm. have the, the right to hand down verdicts. And I found myself perplexed. I found myself in a position where I couldn't understand why this lady was going to try to give my son something that would affect his life, that she was going to put on his record based on just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, the the initial sentence that she wanted to give him would have affected him for years, for years. Unbelievable. For years, because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the the, the charge was loitering. And according right. to the law, or the letter of the law, he had to have had a written permission slip from the owner or the persons therein living there. And come on, when you're a kid, kids invite kids over. Hey, come over to my house after school. Come Thank over and hang out. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, yeah. let, let's, yeah. let's, let's be clear on that, right? Not to mention the officer Correct. already testified and said that he didn't think that he was a part of that situation okay. at all from his, from his professional mm-hmm. opinion. And I okay. had to stand there. I had to stand up and speak on my son's behalf there in court and, 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 and damn near do her, you're out of order. This whole court's out of order. I like literally, <laughs> I, like, I, said, I said, how am I supposed to teach right. my son? Right from wrong. How am I supposed to tell him that this is justice? Where do we go from here? How am I supposed to tell him after today when he's asking me why is this happening? Years from now, when he's asking me why is this happening, how am I supposed to how am I supposed to look him in the eyes of man as a black father and tell him that right. this when, when, and you right. as a black judge, you're right. doing this. Right. And you know, we we you know, we 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 got everything down to probation, but just the, the idea that that's what was going to happen and what she was actually intending to do and what would have really been on his record, it's just it's despicable. And that's what I mean when we always it always goes back to the law. I hear you. But no, um going back to what you're saying, as as an officer who's got over thirty years of experience, I can't say that what the I can say that I would have handled it totally differently. What I try to do is talk to all of the, the people who would be involved in that situation. I would weed out the ones who clearly, you know, were either there inexplicably or did not need to be part of the system. 
and I the the whole goal of being in a law enforcement capacity is to do community engagement and to do community policing. If I found your son in a crowd and, you know, it appeared that he did not belong with the rest of the group, one of the things I would do is pull him aside and say, hey, son, get your mom or your dad on the line for me. Let me speak to him. I would speak and he to wasn't even with that group. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't even oh. with the group. He was, in the, I understand. he was there in the vicinity. Yeah, he wasn't with right. the group at all. Right. Okay, okay. All I can say is we've got a lot of work to do, even in this day and age, with all of the technology that we have, with all of the abilities we have to build better officers. Part of the reason that I became a police instructor for the FBI, and part of the reason I am currently the training and tactical coordinator for the police department I work for here in New Orleans, is I'm trying to get them to understand there are better ways to policing out here than having to be the strong arm of the law. And that's as simple as I can put it, that people can understand. Believe me, there have been comments that, you know, people have made. Well, if you wanted to be, you know, if you want to be a cop, you shouldn't be so scary. You know, my whole thing is I don't fear any person or the ability of what they have to do to me. The only being that I fear is God above. I go out every day with the understanding that I'm going to make a difference out there and try to make people understand they have a responsibility to society, not just to me. They have a responsibility to themselves and this collective. Unfortunately, when you throw race into it and economics and socioeconomics and everything else, you're seeing the product of what it is now in today's society with this implicit racism and everything else. We all have some level of implicit racism in ourselves whether it's towards people of color, whether it's towards uh, social dynamics, whether it's towards um, life choices, you know, alternative lifestyles, whatever it may be, we all have some form of small implicit bias within us. We have to practice each day to be better than that. As law enforcement officers, we should be doing it better than the average citizen on the street, whether they appreciate what we're doing or not. And I get daily told, you know, go to hell and die. And I, you know, I can't stand you people and everything else. And I said, ma'am, you don't even know me personally. If you did, you would know that as a Christian, God-fearing person, I work every day to try to make life better for everybody, not just my kids, but your children as well, your parents as well. And where we have fallen short is we've, you know, we've given up on a lot of things while we have personal agendas that drive us forward. I sit, I used to sit on the 21st century policing com, uh, committee for the white house when our previous president was in office. And I worked with IACP international association of chiefs of police as a fellow. We looked at everything from officer emotional distress to suicide to early stages of officer violence and and all of these things that are now driving conversations into reality. And when we tried to address it seven, eight, nine years ago, people weren't seeing it, they weren't accepting it, they weren't swallowing it. Now it's staring them in the face like that tiger in the room, and they have no choice but to deal with it. So now the question is, do we allow this responsibility to fall by the wayside and burn to the ground, or do we step up? as chiefs of police, as sheriffs, as even sergeants, or even patrol officers in the community. We all have a role to play in building a better tomorrow. The question is, we first have to figure out how to regain the trust of this society. And that's where stronger training and harder work is gonna come into play. And that's one poor man's view on trying to do com trying to do what it try to do the job correctly because well, I know I'll probably get burned by the wayside for it but at least I look in the mirror twice a day Carl I look in the mirror every morning when I get up I look every morning uh, and in the evenings when I get in from work I look in the mirror and I ask myself have I done the best that I could today as a police officer and as a person and if I cannot for whatever reason one day look myself in the eyes I know I have failed but so far, I sleep soundly every night because of what I do out here and how I try to help people every day. First of all, I commend you for uh, sharing that. And, and I, I knew that you were that kind of person when you told me 
one of the other things I commend is that you said you can you you're part of a group of of people that made a vow to continue to do it after even after your service continues mm -hmm. right after the you mm -hmm. know you've retired you're done you're still it's you're a still out commitment. yeah yeah mm -hmm. and that's that's a beautiful thing if if only if only we could be right. more like that right well, uh, to each other um, I'm a hopeless I'm a hopeless romantic unfortunately I believe that there can be a better tomorrow I want my 19 year old son to grow up in a world that he doesn't have to worry about being challenged strictly by the color of his skin. I want him to be challenged by the content of his knowledge. And that should be the only factor that should decide his destiny, his path, his goal. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not even just about black and white. Asians you know are suffering struggle. Native you know Americans. How, you know how we're going to get there? Hispanics. Mm -hmm. When everybody's the same color. And the way they're crossbreeding now, that's one of the yeah, biggest fears that, that nine what minorities are having. Yeah, that's what they're about to. That's what that's what's about to happen. You know, you know that's exactly what's what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know. Yep. Um, let me let me ask you this. So, I'm, I'm gonna ask you three three questions that I want you to answer. Okay. Okay. The first of which is, um, and it's a two part. The first is a two party. Like, what's the barrier to that that we're talking about? Right. I mean, to a what's the barrier to a better relationship with the community? What's what's that gap? What's that bridge? You think that we need building, to building? Building. The answer is building trust, talking to people as human beings, and not talking to them, prejudging them as criminals to begin with. Every person I come into contact, it's yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, and people say to me, well. I don't understand why you call me ma'am or sir. I said, because it's the proper respect that's due to you. Now, if you want to give me a reason to stop calling you that, then we can go there. But until then, I see you as my equal, simply because of the breath you take into your body. I'm no better than you. I'm no worse than you. But what I am here to do is to try to make life easier for both you and whoever else you have this conflict going on. I am the peacekeeper here. And that's what it simply comes down to. Now, unfortunately, I am not a perfect being, Carl. There was only one perfect person that walked this earth. And look at what they did to him. <laughs> so all I can do is strive to be more like him every day, mm -hmm. more Christian and more transparent with people. I can honestly tell you every day I treat people better than I probably would treat myself because I feel that that is the only way that they will understand who they are if someone just gave them one opportunity to believe in themselves. And every well, day I try to do that. I try to get people to reinstill pride in themselves, even when they know they don't have any pride. Right. Well, why do you think other officers don't feel that way? Because not all officers went into this profession for the same reason, number one. Some, some went into it because they could not get a job in, with anything else. Some went into it because they felt it was the quickest way for them to earn respect. Some of them went into it for the simple joy and love of helping people. And then there's a multitude of different other reasons why they went into it. But those are the three basic cognitives as to why they crossed over into that dynamic of career. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. So you remember the TV show back in the day with Richard Roundtree, right? He was on the FBI story, and then he later exactly. went on to be Shaft. Right. Which was, when which I, was really when the I real first, black on yeah, the law, right? Right. When I first saw him on the FBI story, that was what made me want to become an FBI agent back when I was just a young, snot-nosed kid. See? See the power? I tell people all the time, man, if we continue to make sure that we put out these positive images... But, you know, you know, which yeah. is what I've what I've kind of fashioned myself in with regards mm -hmm. to the roles that I choose. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. yourself, I feel like we have a responsibility mm -hmm. that's bigger than to ourselves. Um, if you know. yeah, if, if we understood what just the basic action we did every day, how it can change people's lives. If you have one minute, I'm going to digress and tell you a quick story. I was working safe streets. Uh, in Washington, D.C., that's where we would go out and round up the worst of the worst who were, you know, jump warrants and had killed people, and we had warrants to go out 
find them, break, bring them back in. We would work from basically four in the morning until about 10 o'clock in the morning, going out and bringing in the worst of society into jail. One morning, we're myself and two other metropolitan police detectives, we're in the McDonald's downtown on E Street. And there's a young man in front of me. He must have been, oh, about 10, 11 years old. And he orders his food. He's getting breakfast. And while he's standing there, I see him. I'm standing behind him. I've got on an FBI police vest, uh, Kevlar vest. I've got an earpiece in. I've got a weapon on my side, everything. Clearly stating I'm law enforcement, as are the other two officers. So I'm standing right behind him. And he's looking in his hand, and I can see he's counting his money. He's realizing that he doesn't have um, enough money. So what happens is he decides, I'm going to snatch this food as soon as she puts it on the counter and run out. But right as she sets the food on the counter, the, 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 the waitress or the hostess, he reaches for it. And I said, ma'am, I got this young man's breakfast. And he turned around and he looked at me and he stared at me. His eyes were about the size of 50 cent pieces. I said, don't worry about it, young brother. I got you covered. So I paid for his breakfast. I said, how much money do you have in your pocket? Do you have enough money for lunch? He said, no. So I gave him a couple of more dollars, and I sent him on his way. Fast forward to 2012. I'm working a case on the street in Washington, D.C. They've got a crime scene tape up, and we're out there dealing with our portion of it. And as I'm getting ready to leave the scene, this young MPD police officer, young black man, walks up to me. He's got sergeant stripes on his shoulder. And he says, um, you don't remember me, do you? And I looked at him and I said, no. He says, you remember a young kid back in McDonald's that you helped one day? And my mouth just kind of dropped open. And he said, um, yeah, I'm that kid. And because of you, I didn't go into a gang that my brother was trying to push me into. And I ended up going into law enforcement, and I just passed and became a sergeant with the police department. I'm telling you, just one little act of kindness may change a person's entire trajectory. Do you understand wow. me? Yes, yes. I'm... That's living proof right there. Wow, that is, uh, that's pretty amazing. Man. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people didn't know today, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to The Black Home of the Law. We are interviewing and talking to, we're chatting with, not even interviewing, we're chatting with, uh, Mr. Jacques Baptiste, Jacques Baptiste, a.k.a. Jesus, apparently. Um, a lot of you didn't know this man uh, moonlights as Jesus. So, uh, man, this has been great. Like, I love hearing these stories, man. I love hearing, you know, just your, your point of view on and your take on, on not only just bridging the gap, but just overall your point of view on the your the law enforcement side with the community because these are the, these are the issues we need to tackle these are the things we need to address and 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 uh, try to come to some sort of understanding try to come to a middle ground try to you know we need to put as many solutions out there in the air as possible and educate not only that but we're educating you know we're educating people today we're educating um, uh, I know I've learned a lot what are your thoughts on Brianna Taylor but also do you think law enforcement officers should be held accountable criminally? And here's my here's the here's the reason I ask that. These these rules are set in opposition. I'm sure if a lot of people knew the only thing that could happen to them from killing one of you know killing someone while on duty while at work would be to just get some time off or paid leave, might be a lot of le less people in the world. So. My question to you is twofold. One, thoughts on Breonna Taylor. And two, should law enforcement officers be held accountable criminally? Answering from the outside in, let's deal with the law enforcement officer portion first. Yes. We're all given a clear set of rules on, of engagement. It's clear to us we understand and we, un, we take constitutional law as a course. So we understand the rights. We're also taught right from wrong as police officers. If for some reason the action is so egregious that it goes outside of the normal teachings of what is viewed as proper, then yes, they should be held criminally responsible. Perfect example in North in, in North Charleston, officer who shot the man in the back as he ran away for having an expired driver's license, then takes his taser off and drops it at the man's feet, claiming the man grabbed his taser and ran. Clearly egregious, okay? That's one example. 
Number two, in dealing with Breonna Taylor, I don't have all of the facts of the case. I only know what the news has shown it as, so I can't armchair it. All I can tell you is they had a reason for being there, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. How it should have been handled may have been in question. It was wrong that she should have lost her life. No one should lose their lives when interacting, especially in a police matter. But these things do happen. I'm not releasing these officers from any wrongdoing or any culpability. All I'm saying is the media distorts a lot of what we perceive and see as the truth. Okay? And we need to have some way of knowing clear cut what is proper and what is just in this situation. My heart goes out to her. I wear a badge with a black stripe over it, not just for law enforcement officers who've been killed in the line of duty, but for all people who've been killed in the line of duty, whether it's from the officer or whether it's from some interaction with an officer or whether it's wrongful deaths like that are occurring in Chicago every night where you're getting 16, 70 people shot and killed for whatever reason. So hopefully I answered your question. I am, I'm, I'm, I am, reticent to really delve into the whole Breonna Taylor situation because Mm -hmm. it's so politically charged up to the point of where we've had officers shot while working the protest. I want to be careful to understand all of the totality of circumstances and know that they are the truth before I pass judgment. The only thing I can say is I am sorry she lost her life and she should not have. And I'm sorry about the background noise. I had to come back out on my detail because the crowd is starting to gather outside right now. It's all right. I know you got to go, my brother. I know you got to go, and I thank you for giving us your time today. Well, I'm going to tell you and something. And I'm sorry again for that background noise. The crowds are really starting to gather. I, listen, I know. Don't worry about it, man. You are a busy man, and I thank you for taking your time. And, and we're proud of you as well. And I know everybody out there listening, including your family, well, I'm sure, who, who is very, very proud of you. And I thank you once again. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jacques Baptiste. Once again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone be safe. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.